0: Alright, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest who has recently published a superb true crime non book that reads like a thriller. The title of the book is Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. The author's name is Peter Houlihan, and the book was recently published June 11th, 2019. He is a freelance writer. He's uh, had publications in such important websites or or magazines at salon and he has an mfa from sarah lawrence college and uh, i'm just delighted that he's here to talk about the book so peter are you there i am thanks Thanks for having me william awesome well thanks for being on the show i appreciate it for people who may not know your name or your background can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this particular crime case
1: Sure. My background in writing is, as you say, I've done some journalism, some book reviews for the Hearst papers and AP wire and and a lot of publications on a lot of subjects. Um, the, uh, the Norco bank robbery, the subject of the book, uh, happened in 1980 in Riverside, California, just outside of Los Angeles. And it happened when I was about 18 years old and I lived about 20 miles away from it. So I was completely captivated by the event when it happened. Um, And it has always stuck with me through the years. And I used to tell people about it and they would uh, usually get two reactions. One is, did that really happen? And the other was, uh, how come I don't know about this? Well, uh, yes, it really happened, and it's, uh, it's happened on quite a grand scale. And uh, the reason why not everybody knows about it is because it came before the time of the internet and ubiquitous uh, video and, and uh, 24-hour news stations and things like that. So uh, news was more provincial. It was a national story for a day or two, and then... Uh, and then it be, went back to being a provincial story.
0: Gotcha. So but it's always stuck with me. For people who don't know where Norco is in, in relation to where you were, can you talk a little bit about that area and, and the city of Norco?
1: Sure. Uh, Norco is Riverside County, and Riverside and San Bernardino counties are known as the Inland Empire. They're in the, the wider Los Angeles metro area. Um, certainly back in those days, but still to a certain extent, it is a very gritty, blue-collar uh, area. It was also uh, a lot of it was still agricultural and um, a lot of uh, horses. And uh, uh, they used to call San Bernardino where part of this uh, took place as well. They used to call it Cow County. Um, uh, Norco was a funny little town all in the middle of it. Um, it's a small. Place about uh twenty fifteen to twenty thousand back then, and uh, it went by the name of horse town u s a but this was real this was not Kentucky bluegrass horse country uh you know this is a very arid dry place, and these were uh Blue-collar people who loved horses and mostly kept them in their uh, in their suburban backyards. So, uh, and they rode them down to the to the store to pick up a loaf of bread, or they'd. Uh, um, so you you go through Norco and you had the odd sight of uh, horses all coming down the sides of the street, tied up in front of shops, and um, so it was very unique. But uh, it was really smack dab in the middle, and as I say, about forty miles east of downtown Los Angeles.
0: Right, and it's still actually a little bit of a horse country today, as far as I mean, I was through there maybe five years ago, but it's close to Corona, so south, maybe southwestern part of San Bernardino County,
1: and yeah, it's actually Riverside County. But you're absolutely okay, right; it is about that far from San Bernardino. It's not far south of uh of um. Uh, of riverside city itself and yeah it's it's not changed tremendously uh it's a little more built up and kind of the industry's changed a little bit but uh yeah it's it's it's, a lot of it looks very much the same as it did then
0: so if you were 18 and and in orange county can you talk about what la was like around that time and, and kind of set the background for this event
1: yeah, the uh, the time and the place in which this event took place um, really had an influence on it. So the event itself was May 9th, nineteen eighty, which is really when you think about it, it's really the seventies <laughs> at that point. It's more what we thought of as the as the seventies. And um, uh, you know th- that was a very tumultuous era for everyone, but um, but also California. Um, there was high crime rates. Uh, there was, of course, the threat of nuclear war. hanging all over it. All um, there was uh, a lot of the idealism of the 1960s kind of turned very ugly in the 70s. Um, high drug abuse um, and, and things like that. Um, and uh, the the way this all this factors in is the um, uh, the young man who uh, who planned the robbery, George Wayne Smith, grew up in Orange County, California. Actually, all five of the bank robbers did, but George grew up in Orange County. And at an early age, he became involved in the uh, very uh, aggressively evangelical born-again Christian youth movement that uh, – uh, swept through Orange County and really originated in Orange County, and uh, and then became known as the Jesus Movement throughout uh, the United States. And at the heart of these uh, ministries is end times theology based on the Book of Revelation, and um, that was a very big force in the uh, in Orange County where George Smith was at that time. And George became uh, convinced that uh, the end of times was coming near that there were going to be great catastrophes and a breakdown of civil society that would need to be survived by uh By those who were prepared to survive it Mm -hmm. in order to then eventually get to the second coming. So that that was certainly, and then if, and and I'll just finish it off with this when you do have apocalyptic beliefs and you're in the 1970s, you don't have to look much past uh, the threat of nuclear obliteration, which was, uh, you know, that really was a dangerous time in the Cold War. So those influences really were important on. propelling george smith towards this bank he he
0: was involved in the calvary chapel and this character by the name of chuck smith who actually set the date of the tribulation to 1981 and i think in your book you call it the jupiter effect there was all these things that were going to happen that you know the end was coming very shortly and uh so he and this this the and you bring up these other interesting characters lonnie frisbee this whole culture that really was there in orange county was George Smith was part of that
1: yeah and and this is not to be a ringing indictment of Cavalry Chapel which is still around or necessarily um Chuck Smith no relation uh Pastor Chuck Smith the founder um but uh you know there were there were a lot of wayward young lives down in the 70s people who had kind of uh, uh flunked out or had had pursued some idealisms like commune living and things and drug use that had had dead ended for them however they were very heavy on the um on the uh, the the rapture and uh keeping their young uh membership um essentially terrified that if they were not good with the church and good with god at any moment that this rapture was going to come and um and they were aggressively recruiting young people so you know there was a and, and certainly not everybody who joined cavalry chapel went on and robbed a bank so there were a number of things with george smith um jupiter right. effect again this is another thing where the uh where the uh the period in which this took place, uh, the, the George's, uh, roommate, they owned a house together and the other main, uh, uh, Organizer of this uh, bank robbery was a guy named Christopher Harvin, and he uh, also believed that uh, catastrophes and, and the breakdown of civil society and everything was coming. But he was more a believer in the doomsday scenarios that were very popular throughout the uh, throughout the 1970s, and these were most, mostly environmental um, or natural-made um, or man-made, but uh, you know, earthquakes and um, and uh, asteroid strikes and popular bombs and all the uh, all these doomsday scenarios and and the jupiter effect was a was indeed an alignment and a very unusual alignment of planets all on one side of the sun. Um, that happened in 1982. But the very popular book that was put out called The Jupiter Effect said that this would trigger volcanoes up and down the Pacific Rim, earthquakes, uh, tidal waves, because of the, the shift in the gravitational pull. And uh, and Chris really was a big believer in that. So they kind of, they believed, <laughs> they believed that, that in the same kind of where it all was headed, but for different reasons.
0: Right. And so, uh, George was really the kind of central ideological figure, but can you talk a little bit about the people he, uh, kind of grouped up with to commit this act?
1: Yeah, George was very intelligent. He's very articulate and he's very persuasive. And he also has a, an unwavering belief that what he thinks is right. And what he, uh, what knows is, is better than anyone around him. And he has a bit of a grandiosity, um, uh, Chris Harvin, as I said, they owned a, they owned a house together. They had met as uh, as landscapers for the uh, city parks department of uh, Cyprus, the city of Cyprus nearby. Um, Chris was a bit of a troublemaker, but not in a not in a uh, not in a violent way or anything. None of them had none of the five had criminal records of any meaning meaningfulness or uh, any meaningful criminal records. But um, you know, he's a guy who'd do anything on a dare. He's a bit of a troublemaker, got himself thrown out of the army uh, on purpose two months after getting, uh, you know, drafted into it. Um, whereas George served in the army for two years and had an honorable discharge. Um, and, uh, and it was Chris who recruited his younger brother, Russell Harvin, who was uh, 27 years old. Okay. So George is 28 years old. Chris is about 29 years old. Russell Harvin, his young brother, who was just kind of a smoking pot and doing nothing with his life, living at his parents house in Anaheim, California, recruited him. And, um, and then, uh, The other two members were, were much younger. It was, uh, Manny Delgado, uh, and, uh, his younger brother, uh, Manny was 21 and his younger brother, Billy Delgado was 17 who Manny recruited to be the getaway driver. And Manny knew, uh, Chris and he knew, uh, George Smith because he was also worked at the parks department in city of Cyprus. Um, and they were, you know, they were kids right out of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the barrio of orange County, um, uh, you know, real tough, and real tough Hispanic neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, George and Chris, they were real, uh you know, which just straight off blue collar, Orange County.
0: Gotcha. And they, they were kind of fans of, of underground literature and guns, even before the event. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Uh, they both had an interest in guns. George had, uh, was, a, had become a good shot when he was in the army and, um, and always had a like of guns. Um, and, and, Chris did as well. Um, and then Chris really got into kind of the survivalism and, and really got caught up in that. Um, so he, he, he was always had a lot of guns around. And uh, but then when they both kind of locked on to the uh, to the belief that, um, you know, the, the these catastrophes and these uh, breakdowns in society and lawlessness were imminent, then they started to ramp up and uh, start to what, what I guess would go from uh, being a uh, in, in gun enthusiast to stockpiling, actually, right. weapons. And they, they built up quite an arsenal, particularly when it came to, a, you know, when they decided they were going to do this bank robbery. Because that's
0: one of the interesting focuses of the book is that just detailing these guns and the weaponry they have was really unique in the commission of this crime. Like they were armed to the teeth
1: yeah, and it was all legally purchased and and uh, but they just these weapons were not nearly as common as uh, as they are now and we're talking about the civilian uh versions of military weapons. These are AR15s, semi-automatic um uh, weapons, uh, rifles with uh high capacity magazines and um and uh, you know, 223s, uh, the, the civilian version of the uh, M16, um, as well as a, a, a 308, which is a, a fires around three times as uh, as big as a 223. I mean, a 308 is an absolute cannon. There's not a there's not an animal in the world that can't be brought down from a half mile away with a single shot from a 308, and that's what George Smith uh, armed himself with. Um, and they had thousands of rounds of ammunition. They had high capacity magazines, forty round magazines, um, all loaded up, dozens and dozens of them, um, when they, you know, when they, when they set about to do this uh, bank robbery. Right. And you know, the, way, the weapons are important because what at the at the bottom of uh, one of the main uh, elements of this is how how badly outgunned the police were. Uh, law enforcement was a- on that day compared to what the bank robbers were. Yeah, I mean, there fu- was
0: one sequence in your book where a cop pulls over and tries to get an M-16 out of like a hunter's hands because they just were not, uh, didn't have the same weaponry. So it's an interesting little vignette.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it turned out not to, much to his dismay. It turned out not to be the weapon he thought, and he ended up just getting a pump action twenty-two. But yeah, they they were uh, they were uh, desperate to try to get anything they could to match that firepower.
0: And what when these guys got to get, I mean, can you talk a little bit also about what LA was like about bank robberies and things like that? Because it seemed to have passed, but back then that was very common.
1: Oh sure. Yeah. The um one of the uh one of the things that's very little known is uh and, and was certainly uh uh, prevalent at the time is Los Angeles has f- f- long been known as the uh, bank robbery capital of the world. That's the nickname the FBI gave it. The FBI has jurisdiction over bank robberies. Um, one out of every four bank robberies committed in the United States uh, occurred within the LA field office of the FBI, their jurisdiction, which is basically, um, you know, the greater Los Angeles basin. And um <clears throat> LA had long had that reputation and, and 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 that and justifiably that that um that title, um, and the reason mostly was because of freeways and the car culture out there. You could rob a bank jump on a freeway and five minutes later be five miles away and cruising the side streets of a of a completely different police jurisdiction uh before the police even arrived on scene and um so it was not hard to get away with a bank robbery uh or at least one of them at the time and um and as the uh, cocaine uh it, what eventually became the crack epidemic, but certainly when cocaine uh, made its rise to the top of the glamour drug chart, a lot of, a lot more people became addicted, and uh, and bank robberies started to rise and rise. So there were about oh, a, it went as high as about the time of the Norco bank robbery. It was about a, a thousand bank robberies a year. That number would eventually get up as high as 2,600 a year, which is 14 a day in the Los Angeles basin.
0: So you <laughs> so those were tied. Those bank robberies
1: were tied to cocaine usage or dealing or something. Some of them. No, no. Th- these, this particular bank robbery was not. Right. But the but, uh... real, the real thing. Yes, yes. The real thing that that, that propelled the the raw numbers way up uh, was was drug addiction. Fascinating.
0: And then maybe what we can talk about is what were these guys planning and how they they chose Norco and what they thought was going to happen. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it, it won't make perfect sense, but here is the logic that they had behind it. Um, George Smith, um, his ultimate goal was to get enough money, along with Chris Harvin, was, uh, but George w- was particularly interested in getting enough money so that he could buy a cabin and land in a remote mountain area such as Utah or Colorado, and that then he would stockpile weapons and um, supplies and food, and he could gather together his loved ones, and they could ride out the catastrophes that would lead up to the rapture. Um, And, um, uh, you know, they spent about all the money they had (laughs) buying the guns to pull off this robbery. Um, But uh, um, George, both George and Chris also had some downturns in their personal lives uh, leading up to this. Uh, That kind of made them feel like they had their backs against the wall. Um, George as I said had this great big grandiosity this uh, about him this view of himself as destined for great things but uh you know he lost his wife he lost his family he he ran out of money he lost his job he lost his car and when he looked at his life it did not match up with the person that he thought he would always be there's a real cognitive cognitive dissonance there and uh what what most of us might look like, look at as a wretch a rough patch to him was a desperate situation that he needed to get out of and uh so they that's why they wanted the money and that's kind of the what what really the approaching apocalypse and some real downturns in his life made him really ramp up this idea this crazy idea he had about uh about doing this uh this you know this takeover bank robbery
0: where where did they live they lived in an adjoining city right they did not live in norco
1: but... yeah norco yeah norco is uh technically an unincorporated area but yes, they lived in an area called Miraloma um, that was uh borders uh just to the just to the south i 'm um, sorry just to the north of uh, um, of norco okay, right. and uh they had moved out there and bought a house together and um, uh, prior to the robbery uh they had begun to turn that property into a fortified um, compound uh fortress um they had strung barbed wire around the uh, perimeter fence and this was just a you know it's a small quarter acre uh, uh suburban slash rural kind of house. Um, and they'd, they'd strung uh, barbed wire up there. They'd, they'd put in thumbtacks, so anybody wanting to come over would get their fingers torn up. Um, and they had dug a pit that led from the backyard underneath the garage so that they could uh, use it either as a bunker or they could uh, use it as an escape tunnel. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, they, they, were, they were nearby Norco. Uh, the reason why they chose that bank um, is is pretty simple. Um, it was not the ideal bank, but the reason why I chose it. It was George's bank. He robbed his own bank. Wow, that's amazing!
0: Amazing choice. And it was different than all these other bank robberies in L.A. Is that there wasn't a freeway within four miles radius of that bank, or something like that? Correct.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know, George Smith violated the cardinal rule of L.A. bank robbers. He robbed a bank that wasn't anywhere near a freeway. And if you looked at a map now, you'd see the Interstate 15 going right through Norco. It did not, it did not extend that far south. Oh, interesting. So he was actually eight miles, uh, six miles in one direction, nine miles in the direction, the other direction that he eventually went from the nearest freeway, um, through through busy boulevards. So uh, he, yeah, I mean, he, he put together quite a grandiose. I don't mean to keep bringing up that word, but it's it's kind of th- the thread that that weaves through george and and the things that he did was uh he put together a, rab- a rather elaborate plan some of it was very smart but um but then he would make some i guess what you'd call rookie mistakes uh like that
0: right and i mean the, when they were conducting the robbery somebody at the bank said these guys don't know what they're doing and it was pretty clear that was their first bank robbery but can you talk about what happened that day on may 9th 1980 and how how it played out and what their planning was and the diversion and their bombs and stuff like that.
1: Sure. The essential elements of the plan were, and this is what began that, that morning, um, Russell and Chris Harvin and Manny, uh, 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 Manny Delgado went down to a shopping mall and stole a van at gunpoint and tied up the owner in the back so he would not report it stolen. And they wanted to use that. Then they were going to use that van, and they did, for the robbery. Uh, they took their own personal vehicles with uh, with um, uh, cold plates on them, stolen plates on them, parked them about a uh, half mile away from uh, from the bank itself, and they were going to do the robbery, uh, dump the van, get in their own cars and, and take off for Vegas and launder the money there. Um, so they did that morning, they did steal the van. And then they uh, set a diversion bomb uh, a mile away underneath a gas main, uh, at a kind of a strip on the back of a strip mall. And that was, uh, intended, it was really, uh, six beer bottles filled with leaded gasoline with a detonation device in it. And, uh, the idea was that it would explode. It would, it would ignite the gas main and every first responder, every, including the police and, and sheriff's deputies would be at that location, a mile away when they would hit the bank and then go to their coal cars in the opposite direction. So, uh, about uh, two thirty, a little after two o'clock um, that afternoon, they uh, they set the uh, they they set the diversion bomb, and it indeed did. Uh, go off and it uh, and it lit the side of the uh, the building on fire. But uh, someone in a building nearby spotted it, and a passerby jumped out of his truck and put it out with his uh, with a, with a fire extinguisher. And that's really when they should have called it quits for the day, called it a kidnapping and gone home uh, because they were waiting at the time directly across the street from the bank, uh, waiting to see all of uh the, you know all of the fire trucks and police uh, screaming down Hamner Avenue and then they would go across and hit the bank, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and that never happened. And about 3 o'clock, that's when George Smith ran out of patience and said, all right, let's just go ahead with this plan anyhow. And they
0: they chose a Friday too because they thought that the banks would be flush with cash, right, to hand out for the weekend?
1: Yeah, and remember, this is a this is also a different time in that respect. People mostly walked in on Fridays with their paychecks, and they took a lot of that paycheck out in cash because you didn't people didn't use uh, credit cards nearly as much as they do now, and the and ATM machines were in their infancy. So, uh, so he struck on a Friday afternoon, which actually is 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 the right time to do it. Uh, he waited a little bit too long, so way too much money had gone out of that bank. Um, by the time that, that they uh, that they did the robbery at 3.30 in the afternoon.
0: Right. Uh, I think you've noted in your book that they were waiting for another cash infusion from, uh, from uh, what is it, a Brinks truck or something like that. So they're waiting for that to happen. So it wasn't totally flush with cash once they decided yeah to... the, uh,
1: yeah the, george and those guys george and the boys weren't aware of that but they yeah the manager at the uh norco branch of the security specific bank uh had put in an order for additional cash because he was afraid he was uh he was going to run out and he was about to run out by the time they went in
0: and then what happened i mean they there was like a moment where they were they had this guy joe ha- hakala or something yeah gary Hackala yeah. tied up in the back of their green van that they had jacked And like you said, George said, we're going to do this anyway. What happened next?
1: Well, yeah, this is a, this is a takeover style robbery. Um, you know, most robberies are note passers one-on-one. This is a, this is a, everybody get down on the floor. We're going to shoot your head off type, uh, type bank robbery. Uh, uh, Billy Delgado, 17-year-old Billy Delgado, stayed behind the uh, the wheel of the uh, of the van as the getaway driver, and the other four burst into the the front door of the Security Pacific Bank in ski masks, uh, military ponchos, these uh, semi-automatic rifles. Manny uh, Delgado had a had what's known as a riot gun. It's a it's a short uh, short stock. Uh, pistol grip uh, shotgun. It's a Winchester shotgun. And, um, you know, Chris Harvin went into that bank with 700 rounds of ammunition strapped to his chest with bandoliers in, in, in loaded magazines. Um, I will also note that they had made homemade fragmentation grenades that could be launched out of the barrel of their shotguns. And um, these were made out of beer cans filled with shrapnel and a detonation device. Um, they had Molotov cocktails. They all had sidearms, thousands of rounds of ammunition, uh, knives, gas masks walkie talkies they were uh really equipped so they burst in the bank and as as you know from from reading the book there is a lot of drama that unfolded inside that bank and the chaos of that bank and and uh you know when when the one uh the lead teller says these guys don't know what they're doing it's because they uh manny delgado demanded that she turn over all the coins you know what bank robber wants to run out with a bunch of coins but um but, you know, all in all, it kind of went like a takeover bag, bank robbery goes. They were, they were exited the bank after two and a half minutes inside. Uh, one of the big problems is there was very little cash left in the bank. Um, but in terms of getting in the bank and getting to the vault and clearing out the uh, teller line and things like that, it kind of went, um, went like a takeover bank robbery should. Uh, one big problem. When they burst out of the van and into the front door, it was a bank teller at a bank across the street that spotted them, and it was that teller that called the Riverside County Sheriff's Department to report an armed robbery in progress. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was that was their bit of uh, that was their downfall, right there.
0: Gotcha. And they they got out at least out of the bank with twenty thousand dollars. So it was a yeah you know, it was yeah comparatively a smaller haul, but still a lot of money for them. And that's when everything went crazy right
1: it sure did and you know with 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 a lot of uh, you know any kind of complicated plans and and in the bank robbery world um, bad luck can come into it as well um, when uh, the teller made the call to the Riverside County Sheriff's Department the Riverside county sheriff's department put out the 211 dispatch robbery in progress security pacific bank fourth and hamner there happened to be one uh sheriff's deputy named glenn belaski he happened to be right at that intersection in his uh in his patrol unit looking right at that bank when that 211 tone dropped as they say and uh that was the exact moment those guys were coming out of the bank and he turned on his lights. He made the left turn onto 4th Street right in front of the bank. Uh, he began to take fire but didn't know it. Um, this is, you know, eight seconds after uh, uh, after uh, the tone had gone out. Um, so he was still trying to work through his mind what might be going on. Um, he was thinking it was a silent alarm. Ninety percent of those are, are false alarms. Um, he did not have time to process the threat he immediately began to take fire blew out his light bar and then he turned into the bank parking lot and found himself uh literally two car lengths away from the front of that van with four of them standing outside and they all just opened fire on glen belaski's patrol unit
0: i mean it's just incredible like they probably none of these police knew they were going to run into like an armed like a literal armed militia group or something
1: well, and, you know, funny you say that. Some of them, when they first got on scene, like another deputy named Andy Delgado, no relation, uh, that's exactly what he thought. The uh, The Iranian hostage crisis was going on at the time. Um, and uh, so every night on the news, you know, that's when uh, 44 americans from the embassy were being held hostage for over 400 days and um every night on the news there was a uh, talk of terrorists and and uh you know the uh the, who hated america and when he came on scene and spotted them that's the first thing he thought he said i've got a terrorist situation on my hand now these guys had not seen anything like this this is not what you expected when you went on um when you went on shift that day um you know bank robbers certainly had not been using weapons like this since the old gangster era the depression era gangsters pretty boy floyd and those uh those characters who were who had uh you know thompson submachine guns <coughs> and the like that, this really didn't happen um you know you're starting to see street gangs drug gangs with these kind of weapons, but not, not that much. So you're absolutely right. Glenn Belaski nor anyone else expected that they would be caught in this kind of firefight against this kind of firepower.
0: And they were, they tried to get to their kind of car. They wanted to switch cars, get out of the green van and get to their cars and then head for Vegas. But that, that's not what happened. Right.
1: Well, it started to all fall apart when they, uh, you know, when you suddenly open fire like that, you, you, needless to say, you draw a lot of attention to yourselves. And this was a crowded Southern California intersection. And Glenn Blasky did manage to get off a transition, a transmission over the radio that said, uh, first taking fire and uh five seconds later officer down he called that he'd been hit 1199 officer down and at that point you had every law enforcement officer in uh in riverside county whether they be california highway patrol or whether they be riverside city cops or whether they be riverside sheriff's deputy all converging on the intersection of fourth and hamner crowded southern california intersection on a uh, Friday afternoon and what ensued was a ferocious firefight in this intersection between uh, three Riverside sheriff's deputies uh, and uh, four heavily armed men and uh, and um, and Billy Delgado also the the, uh, the driver of the van and um, uh, it was over 500 rounds were fired there there were five civilians that were uh, were injured um, Glenn Belaski was hit hit five times Uh, Some of the bank robbers were shot in that intersection. Uh, There was uh, storefronts, civilian vehicles, houses just riddled with gunfire in that intersection, people running for their lives, uh, jumping out of their cars, bailing out and, and running away fast food restaurant on the corner everybody diving beneath the uh, the tables it was a uh, uh it was um, an absolute uh firestorm in that intersection for about five minutes
0: and the, the bank robbers weren't just shooting at the police they were shooting at uh civilians at
1: times as well correct let 's just say at that point they didn 't really care um, there uh, later on in the pursuit, um, because it certainly did not end in that intersection uh, they were uh, it, they seemed to be indiscriminately firing, um, you know maybe they were catching things out of the corner of their eyes and just turning their fire on it but um, uh, they certainly uh, there were certainly plenty of civilians that were uh, caught in the crossfire
0: and I think what happened was is the uh it was the one of the, Delgado, it was Billy Delgado ended up getting shot. Correct.
1: Yeah. The, uh, the way that the firefight, uh, unfolded and, and ended in, in, uh, in the intersection of Hamner Avenue and 4th Street was uh, Glenn Belaske amazingly managed to reverse his car out of the parking lot and, and, and slide it across, uh, you know, back, backwards in reverse and, uh, and ended up uh, right sideways, right in the middle of 4th Street, blocking their original uh, escape route. And Glenn Belaske managed to, while under heavy fire, his, his was hit His patrol unit was hit 46 times. Um, He managed to get off four shotgun rounds, and a pellet from one of them struck Billy Delgado in the big... Face of the skull, paralyzing and eventually killing him. And uh, with the and the van drifted off the road and into a chain leak fence. And when they could not get Billy Delgado out of the driver's seat to get Manny into it, uh, they they abandoned that van. But they took their weapons with them. They left the twenty thousand dollars, but they took uh, duffel bags full of bombs, uh, round uh, you know loaded magazines they had their AK uh their A- AR15s their Heckler uh 223s and Georgia's 308 and they fanned out into that intersection and uh while they were still firing on the on the deputies who were responding and uh they um Uh, they commandeered from a, from a civilian, a pickup truck, a Ford F-250 pickup truck that had been converted into a heavy machinery maintenance vehicle um, with cabinets on the side that were uh, fabricated cabinets on the side that were filled with tools um, and acetylene and oxygen tanks mounted on the back of the cab, those big tall ones um, that, uh, that they could use for cover. And um, so it was the perfect vehicle. And, uh, uh, some of the others had also been wounded, but they left the intersection of 4th and Hamner with guns blazing in that, uh, that monster of a truck, um, you know, for all intents and purposes with their firepower and with the armor on that uh, truck, they, they were almost like a military grade vehicle.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, they, they shot their way out of that intersection and headed North on Hamner Avenue with George Smith in the back, Russell Harvin in the back, Chris Harvin behind the wheel with a 45 caliber handgun in his uh, long Colton his a, uh, in his lap, and Manny Delgado was in the passenger seat, and he lifted himself entirely out of the truck. So he was sitting on the windowsill of the truck with his torso out, and he was firing a Heckler 223 over the front of the cab. So they had three high-powered weapons, high-capacity magazines, uh, guarding that truck as they had headed north.
0: It's just incredible. And then they were shooting at helicopters, and I think you wrote in the book, it, it turned out to be the longest crime scene in American history or something like that like a 40-mile odyssey or stuff, uh, into the night of these guys running for the hills.
1: Yeah, the complexion of this thing really changed uh, as it went through its stages, but um, uh, it, it went from a ferocious pitched firefight in a crowded intersection to a running gun battle uh, with police uh, through the suburban streets of Mira Loma, uh, at, uh, Riverside County, Mira Loma, as they tried to get back to their uh, fortified uh, house, uh, which they could not uh could not get could not shake the police to get to onto a crowded interstate highway interstate fifteen um, and then uh, ended up in uh, on a fire road sixty five hundred feet uh above Los Angeles, clinging to a mountainside and, uh, a mount baldy um, and it ended in an ambush there but uh that stretched forty miles. And it went on for over an hour um, and indeed they uh you know the scope of this thing is rather astonishing there were by when it was all over, there were three dead uh 15 wounded including uh seven sheriff's deputies there was a sheriff's deputy killed there was a police helicopter that was grounded over a uh, shot by george smith with his 308 and grounded over san bernardino and uh 32 police vehicles were either disabled or destroyed by gunfire and uh and these fragmentation grenades they were throwing out on the freeway
0: it's incredible because some of the pictures in your book it looks like a military battle like those uh those cars, the the three hundred eight bullets or whatever, just were ripping these metal metal open in ways that you wouldn't think would be it'd even possible. It's just yeah, an incredible they're really story. really.
1: No, oh, I'm sorry. No, the, go yeah, ahead. they're really ferocious weapons. I mean, I, I mean, anybody who's been in the military knows. Um, anybody who's been on the wrong side of them knows. Especially at three hundred eight, there was one uh, deputy Chuck Hill who said when that went around from the three hundred eight hit his engine block. He could feel, even though it was moving, he could feel the whole the whole vehicle shutter I mean, these things were passing right through the vehicle, going through the engine department, and out through the uh, through the uh, um, dashboard. Uh, you know, two twenty three is a very small round, but it it is it is comes comes out there about almost about three thousand miles per second, a second, and and uh, um, three thousand feet per second, and, and it, it fragments. Um, so it's really a lethal, you know. It it it, it does its job what it, it's intended for. And in
0: the book, you just relate these stories of these police officers having pieces of bullets taken out of their bodies. You know, so these these bullets clearly have shattered or bounced off of something. It's, it's yeah, like, a fragment.
1: You know, they'll yeah. spray you with gr- glass. Um, they'll uh, yeah, they'll fragment once they get in your body, and uh, and the copper jacketing does. Um, and also I I, I forgot to uh to to, to really uh specify what the police were shooting that day um they were you know these riverside sheriff's deputies and the san Bernardino sheriff's deputies and the chp uh well the deputies were guarding the wild west with the same weapons they had for 100 years they had a six shooter and a winchester shotgun wow. and uh they were shooting county uh, county issue lead as they call it bullets and these were pretty much soft lead bullets so um you know they were not any match for for the firepower they were up against um nor could anything they were shooting really penetrate the sides or um you know the oxygen tanks on the on this truck that was that they were up against
0: yeah it's an amazing story i mean it's surprised just you retold it with so much clarity and i really like the fact that you talked a lot about the police officers lives and what they were doing before this event impacted them and how it really did impact them later as well. I mean, this whole terrible sequence and all the gunfire and how their lives were affected. But we are at about 40 minutes, Peter. Is there anything else? that I mean, I recommend people go read this book. There's a lot of other details. There's a lot of other things that happened in the book, this long court case and their arrest and, and who died. And But is there anything else that you'd like to add, Peter, or anything that I missed?
1: No, I would like to punctuate that last point, though. Okay. Really, the human toll and the human drama is really what's at the heart of this story. That's what drew me to it, not just a bang bang shoot 'em up cop thing. And I and I do spend quite a bit of time uh, to so, to letting the reader know, you know, who these people are on both sides and uh, what the impact this had on the on their lives. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, almost half this book is this. Insane trial, this bizarre, strange, uh, crazy trial that unfolded afterwards uh, in, in the wake of this.
0: Yeah, you said it was one of the longest in California history. And you actually went to uh, one of the jails and met one of the the Malvern brothers, is that correct? Harvin brothers. Right? I,
1: I, yeah, I met two of them. I met both the Harvin brothers and spent a lot of time uh, in prison visiting centers with them talking about this they're remarkably candid about it I wrote back and forth with George Smith um, and and I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with all the police officers uh, who, who are still surviving um, who's still you know who's still alive uh, going over their story and I researched this for three years and and had the cooperation from all the law enforcement agencies um, so uh, yeah it's the early research and again like I said I really wanted to get to the uh, you know the human experience which is really at the core of any good well,
0: story. I've read a lot. Like I told you before we talked, I've read a lot of true crime books, and this is definitely one of the best that I've read. It's just an excellent book, a, a superb, riveting narrative. I just it was unbelievable that I hadn't really. Heard, I don't think I ever heard this story, so that was also kind of uh, really eye opening for me, is just to read about this. But uh, is there any way people can contact you? Have a website, right, Peter?
1: I do. It's peterhulahan H-O-U-L-A-H-A-N and uh, there's a way to contact me through that. It's been great to hear from people who've read the book um, and uh, uh, that's the best way to uh, to see what I'm up to as well as appearances that I'm uh, doing at either bookstores or law enforcement events or any oh, number of things. Great, awesome.
0: Well, Peter Houlihan, the book again is Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. Great job. Thank you, Peter.
1: Thank you, William. I really appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Have a great night. And you. Okay, bye-bye.